Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing the one, the only, Stephen Covey. Actually, there's six of them, but there's only one, Stephen M.R. Covey. And he's coming to the Better Call Daddy show today. He's the author of The Speed of Trust. And trust is something super important in relationships and in business. Stephen, welcome. Hey, I am pumped. This is exciting. Oh my gosh. So your daddy has been a tremendous influence on your life. And I wanted to talk about that. Have you ever felt added pressure because of his accomplishments to meet or exceed those kind of expectations? The truth is, yes, I have. And, you know, when I first started working with him, which was a tough decision to do, because I knew by doing that, the comparison would be there nonstop. I kind of thought, there's no way I can compare to what he's doing and accomplishing. So I kind of went down a different path. I, I went down the business path, trying to build the business and turn it into a business, what he was doing, as opposed to what he was doing, which was writing and teaching, speaking all over the world. And so my way of dealing with that was to say, hey, I'm going to go down a different path. I'll focus on building a business and you know, run with his you know, legendary thought leadership and his strengths, his genius and use my strengths in a different way. And that way, I'm not trying to be like him because I thought there's no way I can compare. And so that was interesting. But I, I kind of felt that initially the first 15 years. And then after that, I didn't care anymore. I think I now have found something that I want to say. And I, I'm going to go ahead and say it. And I don't worry that it's not going to be on par with my father. Nothing could be, but that's okay. It kind of evolved into a sense of, of stewardship and responsibility and a sense of legacy that I'm proud of this. And so if I can even just move it forward a little, that's sufficient. So it kind of evolved. It was really interesting how this happened, Rena. Initially, it was a real comparison where I was kind of, I had to carve out my own identity, make sure I didn't do the same thing. So I couldn't be compared. I didn't, I didn't want to just be a poor man's version of my father. And then over time, it got to where I said, you know what, this is a great sense of legacy and responsibility and stewardship. And I'm proud of it. I had to grow into that. And it took some time. 15 years, that's a long time. <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> but I had fun in those 15 years because I tried to turn business into a business, something that was bigger than my dad that could be leveraged and scalable. And we built it all around the world. And the whole idea was to transition from, you know, Stephen R. Covey, the person into Covey Leadership Center, the firm, the company, a global entity. And, and so that's what I kind of prided myself on. And you really did that because you changed the relationship with the bank. Can you talk to me about that? You got into a cash positive business. Absolutely. I'll never forget. I'm nine days on the job as the new CEO. And I go in and meet with our bank and they are wanting to pull our line of credit. And they said, you know what? You're too much of a risk now. <laughs> what had happened was this. We, we had 17 bank covenants. And we are in violation of 10 of the 17 covenants. Too much debt, not enough profit, burning cash too fast, 
et cetera. And we'd had 11 straight years of negative cash flow. We had, you know, high growth because we had a good value proposition for our customers, but we just not learned how to make money. We didn't have a good business model yet. So we had high growth, low margins. We had a lot of debt. We had no outside capital. And if you do the math on that for any financial person, that you know, we're going to run out of cash. And the bank could see it happening. And they said, this is too risky. It's too dangerous. We're going to pull your line. So that's nine days on the job. And the bank says, we're going to pull your line of credit. And I said, whoa, 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 slow down. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm brand new here. And I tried to understand what was going on from their perspective. And I realized, yeah, they're worried that they're going to be left holding the bag, that, you know, we're going to run out of cash and then uh, they'll end up on the short end of the stick. And so I said, look, give us some time and we will demonstrate a business model that can be sustainable. They agreed to it on the condition that we all sign personal guarantees. We had to personally guarantee the business, which is a little bit risky because it was mostly based upon my father because he's the only one of us with any net worth, but still the rest of us signed too. There was a number of founders and, and we all had to sign. But really, Rena, what the bank wanted to see was that we were viable. See, they, they couldn't trust us. Even though we were good people, we didn't perform. <laughs> we didn't deliver like they wanted us to. And as a result, they didn't trust us. We tried to do exactly that. We kind of got out of a lot of hobbies, a lot of things that were interesting to be in, but we couldn't make money yet. We got out of a lot of the hobbies. We began to understand our business, where we were making money, where we weren't. We got a, a business model that made a lot of sense to us. We still tried to focus on creating enormous value for customers, but in a way, it also built the business for us. We began to license and do things that enable us to scale ourselves. And suddenly we transformed the business model, became more profitable, started paying down the debt, got a positive cash flow, all these positive things. And then several months later, after doing this, actually it's about a year later, I go back to the bank and they said, This is good. This is exciting. Let's keep doing it. And then we kept performing, kept delivering. And then finally we went back to the bank. They said, We love what we see. In fact, we love it so much, we want to double your line of credit which is trust. We trust you. But it wasn't until we delivered results that converted the cynics. And until then, they were still cynical about it. But we behaved our way into that trust by delivering, by performing. And that's kind of the learning I gained from all this is that to have trust, you need to have character, you know, be people of integrity and positive intent where you seek mutual benefits and the like. But that's not enough. You also have to have competence. You have to deliver. You have to perform, you have to do what you say you're going to do and have the ability to do that so that people know that when you give your word, you will come through for them because you have character and competence and can deliver. We had to do that as a company. And so that was kind of a, another turning point. But when we came out of that, we had enormous confidence of what we could accomplish and achieve. And we'd gained the trust of our stakeholders, our bank. And then with that, we were able to do all kinds of exciting things. I love in your book too, that you said you have to start with your own habits and keeping yeah. your own word to yourself. When did you learn that? Time and time again throughout my life. I come back to it because it's so easy to think that everybody else is the problem and to look outside of ourselves and to say, you know, as soon as he changes, as soon as they change, as she changes, the board, the bank, the customers, you know, my, my colleague, my peer, my direct report. It's so easy to think that the problem is out there. But if we think that the problem is out there is everybody else, that very thought is the problem because we've disempowered ourselves. We've got to look in the mirror and take responsibility for ourselves. And, and that starts with the little things. And see, here's what's interesting. 
because in, in my book, The Speed of Trust, I highlight how there's lots of behaviors that help you build trust with people. But the research shows that the number one behavior that builds trust with other people is to make them a commitment and then to keep it and make another commitment and keep it. You make and keep commitments. You do what you say you're going to do. Well, that's the fastest way to build trust with other people. Guess what? That's also the fastest way to build trust with yourself is to learn to make and keep commitments to yourself, especially in the little things. So I go to bed at night. I set my alarm in the morning, say, hey, I'm going to go exercise. Instead of setting it at six, I set it at five. I'm going to go exercise. The alarm goes off. <laughs> now, what do I do? It's very easy to just say, ah, oh, you know what? I need the sleep more than the exercise and turn it off. That's just a little small commitment. Now, someone might say, well, that's not really a commitment, but, but maybe it is. What was your intent when you said it? But in those little things, you know, the alarm goes off. I get up, I go exercise. Like I said, that's my first victory of the day. And then I can have another and another. William McRaven, the special ops commander that retired, gave a great speech where he said, you want to change the world? Then make your bed. Make your bed. You know, the whole idea is start with a small thing that you can commit to and do and then do it. And then go on to the next one, the next one. That's making and keeping commitments to yourself. That's how you build self-trust. And self-trust is the foundation for building all kinds of other trust in any relationship or on a team in a company. But how are you going to expect to build trust with others if you don't trust yourself? You got to look in the mirror. You got to start with yourself. And the best way to start with yourself is to make and keep commitments to yourself, especially in the little things. Those little things become the big things. I also loved in your book, the story about, it was your dad that got lost in the middle of a snowstorm. And he said, if I get out of this, I'm going to, to build a hotel here. He's actually my father's grandfather. He's my great grandfather. Oh, so wow. I, so the name so has been in the family the for a while. In the family. I'm actually the fourth generation, Stephen Covey. My father's the third, but we all have different middle names. So we don't carry the moniker third, fourth, et cetera. And then my son is Stephen and his son is Stephen. So we, we're at six generations right now. And uh, so this was the first. This is Stephen Matt Covey, the original Stephen Covey. And he's a sheep herder in Wyoming in the 1800s. You know, he did. He got caught in a blizzard and he literally thought he was going to die. You know, just the winds, the chill, it's way below zero, it's freezing. He hunkered down with the sheep to try to be warm. And then during that night, he made a vow that he offered in a prayer. And, he, and, and it was basically this saying, hey, if I am blessed to somehow survive this and make it through the night, I am going to build right here where I'm at a shelter that others could take shelter in as a symbol of my gratitude for surviving the night. Well, sure enough, he did make it through the night. And he was true to his word. He didn't do it initially, but he, you know, he had to kind of establish himself as a person, as a businessman. He became a successful businessman. And then he said, I've got to fulfill my vow, my promise that only he and God knew about, no one else. And he went back to that place and he built a small motel. And it's called Little America. In the landscape of Wyoming, there's this little small town. The town is called Little America, Wyoming. And you know what it is? It's a, it's a motel and a gas station. And that's it. Because it's in the middle of the prairie land. Still, even to this day, 100 plus years later, it's still just a gas station and a motel. But he went and built a motel there, Little America, as a symbol of his gratitude. But to me, it's a legacy of, of integrity. Being true to your commitments 
even one that was, you know, made in the middle of being desperate. He was true to it. He felt that it was a vow that he made and he wanted to be true to it. And he went back and built a motel and everyone told him he was crazy. But that motel became a little small chain, the little America chain. Go to Salt Lake City, you'll see the Little America Hotel. It's really a great story that's been in the family. A promise made, a promise kept. So that's kind of in my legacy. That's the original Stephen Covey. And I want to kind of be true to that kind of legacy to, you know, where my word is my bond. That's my goal. I loved that story. I mean, wow, vows are in your blood. <laughs> it's in my blood and I got to be, I got to live up to it. That's not easy. And I'll tell you what, I want to make sure that our listeners know I'm not perfect. I struggle, I, I, I try, but I always come back to it. And I learned this from my dad. I'll never forget one time I was with my dad and, and he was at a kind of a session with people teaching the seven habits of highly effective people, his signature work. And someone said, so Dr. Covey, do you live the seven habits? And he said, about 80% of the time. <laughs> and he said, look, I try 100%, but I fall short. And sometimes I'm not as proactive and I become reactive. And sometimes I don't listen first. I, you know, I don't seek first to understand, but I always course correct. I always try to get back on and try to get, you know, kind of make, make amends and get back on the right path and do better. But I'm struggling too. But I do have that in my DNA and also in my software of my mind that I recognize that there's a great power and a great clarity, a great trust that comes from being true, being authentic, being real, being who you say you are, you know, to be rather than to seem. Even when you fall short, you're authentic about it versus trying to cover up or hide and act like you're someone that you're not. And I also learned that from, from my, my dad. Can we talk about a time you fell short at a Brigham Young University versus Utah game? <laughs> Absolutely. This is the rivalry game, you know, two, two big rivals. And, and I remember uh, my nephew was cheering for the other team that I, that I was cheering for. And I got so in, into the game emotionally and he was rubbing it in because his team was killing my team. Just, and he was kind of rubbing it in right in front of me. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to say it, but I wrote about it in the Speed of Trust book to illustrate how human I am too. And at a time that he was rubbing it on me, I had a bottle of water and I just took that water and I dumped it on his head. <laughs> and, you know, the moment I did it, just instantly I, I felt, I said, what am I doing? What's become of me? This is my nephew. You know, and I immediately just said, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. Just my emotions got the be best of me. And I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed with everyone around me. I was humiliated. But then I went about to say, you know what, I've got to make amends for this. And making amends was not just making it right with my nephew, which I did over literally months and years. Even to this day, we have a kind of a fun relationship where I'll joke, hey, you better be careful. I'll dump water on you, you know, and but I tried to really make it up to him in all kinds of ways. But the best way I thought I could make it up to him was I said, I, I've got to quit being so emotional at these games. So into it. And so I really have worked, and this is a work in progress, Rena. <laughs> but I really worked hard to just kind of, when I go to a game, I get into it, I cheer, but I just try to have fun, win or lose. I try to be gracious as a winner or a loser, have class and be complimentary, still have fun, still care, still root, but I can't get into it to where I would pour water on the top of the head of my nephew or something like that. The good news is on this matter at games, I've become really good. I haven't lost it 
since, you know, it's been 20 years. So hopefully I behaved my way out of that one. And you yourself have been a coach too for your own children's sports teams, correct? Yeah, I've had fun with that. I'm not a big name coach. This is just coaching my own kids like a lot of parents might do. I will say this though, that I was informed by this learning where I changed my coaching style to make sure that I wasn't just focused on winning. Cause you know, I'm coaching young kids that are in grade school, fourth, fifth, sixth grade and the like. And so I'm teaching them values really. And if all they see is we got to win, win, win at all costs, that's not teaching them a good value. So I would establish for every game, we have six goals. And again, sometimes I started as young as kindergarten. So imagine this, we get together and we'd practice and we'd say, every game we play, we have six goals for the game. Here's our first goal, to have fun. Second, we want to play our hardest. You know, third goal is we're going to be a good team player. We're on a team. That's the third goal. We can always achieve that one every game, whether we win or lose. Fourth goal, we're going to be good sports. Fifth, we're going to always try to learn something. And sixth, we're also going to try to win. And we may not win every game because there's another team that's trying to win too, but we're going to try every time to win. And so I said, look, we may not get all six goals, but we can always get five. We can always do the first five and we can do part of the sixth one. We can always try to win really hard, compete well. And most of the time we can win if we work at it hard and, and, you know, and we won most of the time. That incident of the pouring the water became also reformed how I coached so that Winning, you know, was not the most important thing with kids growing up. You want to teach them good values and, and, and how you go about doing it is as important as the results that you achieve. Are you like that as a dad as well? I hope. I probably try. You know, one thing I'll try, I try to do as a dad, similar to this, is recognize that everyone has their own strengths. You know, I've got five children. You know, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> we had a late life surprise there at the end. And I try not to compare but try to run with everyone's strengths, everyone's uniqueness. So in that sense, it's trying to say, look, there's not just one right way. There's many right ways and there's many different strengths and the different approaches. And so, you know, what's important to you? What matters to you? What are your skills? What are your strengths? Let's run with those. And I try to be my kid's biggest cheerleader and champion because if their parents aren't, who's going to be? And that doesn't mean I don't hold them accountable. And I got, you know, stories on that one too. <laughs> but I try to, you know, see their potential and help them see their potential. That's the great definition of leadership that my father gave that I've tried to adopt, which is this, that leadership is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they come to see it in themselves, that they're inspired to see it in themselves. So I try to be that kind of parent. And again, I fall short, but I'm always coming back time and again and really try to, to see, to develop, to communicate, to unleash their potential. That's what I see as good parenting. That's really beautiful. And, but you did mention that there's some stories of accountability. Now I want to know those. Well, I'll give a good example. So my son, the other, the fifth generation, Stephen Covey, when he turned 16, you know, he can drive, right? So my wife and I, his mother, we sat down and said, okay, look, driving is a privilege, not a right. So let's go over the rules. So we tried to create an agreement driving agreement, you know, and we said, look, we're going to let you use the family car. We'll even pay for the insurance and the gas, but here's some rules that go along with driving, be safe, go to the speed limit, wear your seatbelts, obey the laws, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you got to be responsible. Are you clear on this? Are you, you got it? You know, do you understand? Because if you violate these rules, you, you'll lose the privilege to drive. Don't worry. He said, <laughs> I said, okay, great. So everything was great the first month or so. 
that I'll never forget. It was a Friday night, midnight, and I hear the phone rings. This is back when we were all using landlines. I hear the phone rings, and my wife, his mother, answers the phone, and I hear her say these words. Well, I'll let you talk to his father, officer. <laughs> and sure enough, it's the police. My son has been pulled over for speeding, excessive speeding, has been going 83 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. 83 and a 25. <laughs> now, look, he's a good kid. He just had teenage judgment, right? And uh, he said, Dad, I was just trying to get home for curfew. <laughs> and then later he, he said, Dad, I was just trying to show you what the speed of trust really was. <laughs> you know, and I said, son, that's good, but it's not good enough. So we played this thing out and we went to court and the judge, the judge fined my son $555 and we made him pay it. And it took away most of his savings that he had from a summer job. Again, he's just 16, $555 fine was pretty big at the time. We made him pay it. But then to our surprise, the judge did not take away or suspend his license. He did not. We thought he would, but he didn't. So guess who did? Mom and dad did. We took away his license. Why? Because we wanted him to trust us. We had earlier made an agreement with him. If you violate the rules, you're going to lose the privilege of drive. We needed to hold him accountable to what we had agreed to. Oh, that was hard on him. He was really embarrassed. He was embarrassed with his friends. You know, he no longer can drive after driving. That's hard. It was hard with us. We, we loved having him drive because he could take the other kids around and, and, you know, be a taxi. And now we had to go back to doing that. But we felt like we had to hold him accountable. After several months, he came back to me and said, Dad, I'm ready to drive again. I asked, are you clear about the rules? And he replied, I've never been more clear about anything in my life. Well, here's the good news. Since that time, he became a model driver. How did we know that? Well, we saw it, we observed it, but more importantly, we heard from his friends and for even from his friend's parents. But he earned that reputation. He behaved himself out of the problem that he had behaved himself into. So we had to hold him accountable to what we agreed to, but then he earned the trust back. I would love you to give me a couple of examples of leaders who have behaved their way back into trust as well. Well, I saw this with JetBlue. This was a number of years ago when they had the big ice storm. All the airlines were grounded and, and they had all these operational snafus that got in the way. And, you know, so not only were they affected by the ice storm, like all other airlines, but they had other things that affected them. And they came out of this and they realized, you know what? Their whole, you know, mantra was bringing humanity back to travel. And here they had this massive operational snafu. They came out out of this. And this was led by uh, Needleman, their, at the time their CEO. And he led the way saying, you know what? We need to take responsibility. And they came out of this and they said, customers, we apologize. And we got to be, be better. And we got to do better. And they created a customer bill of rights saying, you've got these bill of rights that you sh can and should expect of us as an airline. We want to do better and so forth. And they took responsibility for this. They owned this. They apologized. They made restitution. They made it right. And they behaved their way back into trust as an airline led by David Needleman. And the customers were, you know, they recognized there was an ice storm, but, but JetBlue held themselves to an even higher standard. They didn't blame the ice storm. They took responsibility. Say this revealed that we've got deficiencies and we're going to get better. And customer, you have a right to expect us to do better. It's really quite remarkable. That's rare. That's impressive. That's why they've been at or near the top in most airline ratings. There's other leaders that do a similar thing. If you, if you make it right when you're wrong, that shows vulnerability. Some people might say that's weakness, but it's actually strength. You know, make it right when you're wrong, own it, take responsibility, 
right the wrong, make restitution a legal concept to make whole, and then clarify what you're going to do going forward to regain the trust. And then again, most importantly, do what you just said you're going to do to regain the trust. We need more of this in our world. It's a low trust world. And so we need to kind of counteract that. And that also can be known as a, a service recovery. I also liked another example in your book where you talked about a donut shop that gave responsibility to the customers to pay in order to streamline getting more donuts out the door. Yeah, just a, it was a, just a simple illustration of a street vendor. He's got a great location outside this nice brand new office complex. Because of this great location in the mornings, all these customers would be gathered to get donuts before they went into their building to go to work. And he notices though that he's, a lot of the customers waiting in line that they grow impatient from the wait. They look at their watches. They kind of leave the line, go in the building and without being served, you know, that bothers him. He's losing customers. He also notices that what was his bottleneck, what was taking him the longest was the process of making change for his customers. You know, that was a bottleneck for him. And he was losing customers as a result. They didn't want to wait. So we thought, hmm, let me trust my customers. I'll just trust them. So it was very simple. He just got a little basket. And in that basket, he put some dollar bills, you know, quarters, nickels, basic change. He put the basket on the end of his cart. The customers would come through. The donut guy would serve, serve the customer donuts and coffee. The customer would reach out to pay the donut guy. And the donut guy would motion to the customer and say, hey, you make your own change. So the customer would go down to the end of the cart and on their own into the basket, they'd make their own change. Now, look, there's some risk to this, right? Because <laughs> maybe the customer makes the wrong change accidentally. Worse, maybe someone does it on purpose. But when trust goes up, let me tell you what also always goes up with it. Speed. That's why I call it the speed of trust. So the donut guy trusted his customer. You make your own change. So they do. Yeah, there was some risk, but speed goes up with it. Suddenly, the donut guy is able to put through twice as many customers as he could before. He's able to put through twice as many customers as he could before. He had a no new cost in doing this. He's still a one person stand. And then here's what he discovered. Rather than people abusing the trust that he gave to him and taking advantage of him, he found just the opposite. People like being trusted. They came back to him more frequently. They were more loyal to him. They told friends about him. And best of all, they gave him larger than normal tips. <laughs> he literally more than doubled his business by simply extending trust to his customer. I use that as just the most simple, basic illustration of what happens when you trust people. And that's another key thing is not only do you have to be trustworthy through your character and your competence to build trust, you need to be trusting. When you don't trust people, they tend not to trust you. So I was in Germany or in Austria. I saw the same thing. I was driving along and I see this, these miles of open flower fields. And then every few hundred yards, I would see a sign that would say, you pick the flowers. And then it had a little, little can where you could put money in. But on the sign, it said, here's the three kinds of flowers. Here's the price tags. You pick them, put the money in the can. And then it said, uh, but only flowers that are paid for will bring you happiness and friendships. <laughs> so they kind of kind of put the onus on you as the customer to be responsible. You know, they, they appeal to your conscience to do the right thing. I talked to a couple of these people that operated these and they said, you know, this is our best business. Customers love it. They get the flowers, the ones they want, when they want. They do all the work. We cut out the middleman. But I asked, but don't people steal from you, take advantage? And they said, I'm sure a few do, but somebody else must make up for it because we get a lot more money in that can than we're supposed to be getting. Nothing is as fast as the speed of trust. Nothing is as profitable as the economics of trust for any business, any organization. 
is a great source of economic value. And most people have never thought of trust being financial, but there, there's economics of trust, greater speed, lower cost when the trust is high. And when the trust goes down, everything takes you longer. Everything costs you more. That is a tax, a low trust tax. And you can put in a value on it, a financial value. And the multiplier effect of high trust, multiple studies shows is about three times higher in a high trust organization in terms of economic value created. And as great as the economics of trust are, I'll tell you what, Rena, even bigger than the economics of trust are just the qualitative dimensions and impacts of trust, of what it does to people, how it energizes people, how it brings energy and joy, happiness, fun. The greatest relationships are those in which people can trust each other. They're the happiest. They're the most productive. They're the most enduring. They're the most fun. In fact, you might say the very definition of a bad relationship is when you can't trust the other person. I love the book. There's so many great examples in there. I mean, there's another example in there where Warren Buffett pretty much made a deal within like five minutes on a handshake because of the trust in the room. Yeah, a great example is Warren Buffett. You know, here's a successful investor, but he's also an operator. He acquires companies. And so he tells a story. I mean, it's a $23 billion company he was acquiring. His company, Berkshire Hathaway, is publicly traded. The company he's acquiring is from a publicly traded company. It was from Walmart. It was called McLean Distribution Food Services, 23 billion. The whole thing happens. I'll, I'll quote from Buffett. He said, to make the McLean deal, we had one single meeting of about two hours. We then shook hands. 29 days later, they had their money. We did no due diligence. We knew everything would be exactly the way they said it would be. So here's this mega deal happening between these publicly traded companies that takes place in a simple handshake after one meeting of two hours that closes in less than a month. Rena, I used to work on Wall Street for a short stint, and I could tell you that a deal of this size would typically take you months and months, six months, maybe even up to a year to close. And you would spend millions of dollars in due diligence with accountants, attorneys, auditors, bankers, et cetera, verifying and validating the data. And all of that is considered good practice. And you know what? Generally, it is good practice. But in this particular case, because there was such high trust, because Buffett himself was so credible and so trusted, and he had a relationship of trust with his counterpart at McLean, Grady Rogier, of whom it was said that he will always do what he says he's going to do. So with that trust, he can come in, do a deal in a handshake, close it in less than a month, spend no money in due diligence instead of the millions typically spent over a year. That's what I mean by the speed of trust. You can't do a deal like that without trust or it'd be foolish to try. But you see, with trust, it becomes a possibility. Nothing is as fast as the speed of trust and nothing is as profitable as the economics of trust. What an opportunity for all of us as individuals, as entrepreneurs, as leaders to say our greatest currency is trust inside the company, outside the company, inside so that we inspire our people. They want to be a part of it. You know, people don't want to be just engaged. They want to be inspired. They want to be, you know, not just satisfied. They want to be inspired. You still have to do other things, but you'll never achieve those things without trust. Okay. I got to throw one more Warren Buffett quote out there. He says it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. Can we talk a little bit about what happens when leaders destroy their credibility? Yeah. Well, just like Buffett said, you know, you got to consistently behave your way into trust. That will take you time. 20 years is kind of his metaphor of takes you time. I believe you can build it faster when you get a reputation and brand in front of you. But the, the point is, 
you build it over time, but you can lose it fast. One act alone where you violate integrity, where you, you have made a commitment and you blatantly go against it and, and break it. And, and people say, gosh, his word is not his bond. He'll, you know, break commitments that he makes. You can't trust what he's saying. You can lose it so much faster. And so in the speed of trust, I, I highlight 13 behaviors. They help you build trust, like talk straight, create transparency, right wrongs, keep commitments, listen first, extend trust, et cetera. And I also highlight how if you do the opposite of those behaviors or the counterfeit of those behaviors, you will destroy trust fast. And so sometimes the fastest way to build trust with people is just to quit taking the withdrawals to the trust bank account, if you will. Quit taking the withdrawals that are overdrawing the account, to, you know, the violations of trust. If you just quit doing that, then start making more deposits into that trust bank account. Buffett walks in any, any meeting and yeah, he's wealthy and powerful. More than that, he's credible and trusted, and he's got a track record of his entire life that demonstrates he's a person of integrity. His reputation precedes him. And so he actually builds trust exceptionally fast today because he's already on third base. He's credible. Do you think when trust is broken in a marital relationship that that can be earned back? It's an important question. I think in many cases, it is possible perhaps not every case. And again, I can't speak for another. Everyone's in their own situation. I do know this, in order to restore trust in a marriage situation where the trust has been violated, both parties need to be willing. The one, the offender, if there's a particular offender in particular, has to want to do this and own it and take responsibility and be willing to pay the price and behave their way back into trust, which will take time, maybe a lot of time. But the other party also has to be willing to say it's worth it to me to give them the chance to do it. And sometimes that's not always the case. Again, I, I would never judge another person or situation or marriage because everything's its own situation. You know, you have to look at it yourself. But I've seen it happen where in a marriage relationship where there was betrayal, where because of the willingness of both parties in particular, the one who was the primary offender who betrayed, but also the willingness of the other to allow their partner to behave, in this case, his way back into trust. It took time to where they felt like they had regained the trust and regained the sense of real confidence in the relationship. Is it easy? No. Does it take time? Absolutely. Is it possible? I believe it is in many situations. But I also acknowledge that maybe not in every situation and that it's not easy. If we couldn't restore trust in life, we'd all be circling the drain in some way, shape, or form. So I always say there's three things, you know, to restore trust. First of all, what's the nature of the violation of trust? It's harder to restore when the violation is on the character side than on the competence side. You know, JetBlue was on the competence side. They were able to restore that. That's easier than on the character side. Bernie Madoff, were he alive today, would have had a hard time restoring trust with people because of the egregious nature of how he violated integrity over years, repeatedly over time. That would have been hard to restore. What's the nature of the relationship? Was it a transactional relationship where it's just one time and look, people have moved on. There's no real opportunity to restore it. Or is this an ongoing relationship with a parent and a child, for instance, where you really would like to have a long-term relationship? So it's more of an enduring relationship, ideally, 
than versus a transactional one. There's more opportunity to maybe in an enduring relationship to restore it. And then third, what's the willingness of both parties? I say both, even though the principal responsibility is on the offender and then behavior way back into trust, keeping commitments. It's a big act to say, I choose to forgive. But it's also possible to forgive someone and still not trust them. I feel like I, I kind of surveyed my audience and asked them like, what kinds of situations are they feeling low trust? And that was one that I saw again and again. I mean, did you? Mm-hmm. relationships end 50% of the time, probably did more you? than 50% of the time in divorce. So that's why I yeah. wanted to ask you since you really study the subject. You know, my first audience has always been in a business setting, in an organizational setting, but organizations are made up of people and people are human. And this is human to have relationships at every level, personal ones. In fact, the most meaningful and important relationships are personal ones for the people in an organization. It's not easy. You know, that's why more than half or half or more than half perhaps of these go different ways. I don't know your beliefs in God or anything, but there is that one saying, like, if you are forgiving to others, then God will be forgiving to you. Yes. That's the idea. It's the principle of reciprocity. Yeah. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors, it goes both directions, right? When you trust others, they tend to trust you back. You don't trust others. They tend to not trust you. You forgive others. They tend to forgive you back. You don't forgive. They tend to not forgive you. Yes, there is a lot to this reciprocity and someone needs to go first. And uh, Rena, I think leaders go first and good partners go first. And, you know, so it takes courage to go first. It takes humility to go first, especially when you feel like, hey, they're at fault. <laughs> it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable and I'm willing to go first. That's risky, but it's also risky not to do it. If you don't do it and if you're just kind of putting on airs and pretending rather than being or not being authentic and real, how far you'll go with that type of relationship. It's not, that's not a solid foundation to build upon. So there's a risk to that too. Those well, are just thank some you thoughts. so much. This has been amazing. Usually I wrap up the show and I say, is there anything that you'd like to ask my daddy? But I feel like since your daddy might have some advice or something that you would like to end on honoring him, is there anything that sticks out in your mind? I would say that my father was, uh, had a great statement where he would say, uh, be a light, not a judge, be a model, not a critic. And I think that's great in a relationship. It's very easy in a relationship to be a judge of the other person and to be a critic of the other person. And there might be a time and a place where that's appropriate. But what's more important is that who we are, you know, so be a light, not a judge. So be part of the solution, be a model and not just a judge of the other, you know, be a model, not a critic so that you're bringing your part to the solution. And it's just so easy to look at out there, out the window at everybody else and not into the mirror at ourselves. And so um, that's the whole idea of, you know, it's inside out. So always look in the mirror, not out the window. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Wow. You, you made this a 10, a hundred percent. Thanks, Rena. I love being on, on your show. This is a great podcast. It's a lot of fun. I love the basic premise and, you know, truly uh, better call daddy podcast. And, you know, with, with how your f- father's involved and you re- relate with me because I've got a father that has been involved in my life in so many different ways. And now I feel like I'm trying to, to carry on his legacy. And I feel a sense of stewardship 
and, and, and a desire to do it, not just a sense of responsibility only, but truly a desire and interest. And that's what you're doing, which is really creative, unique, interesting, and fun. And I think it's a real value to listeners everywhere. So I love what you're doing and I wish you every, every success as you continue this great work. So daddy, what did you think? Isn't this just a marvelous rendition of what legacy really means? It's not passing on necessarily all your money. It's passing on your integrity, your loyalty, your honor, your commitment. It's passing on values and traditions. That's what it's about. And it starts with Steve Covey the first. And what did he say? If I survive this, I'm even going to build a hotel here. He made a vow to himself. He made a vow to God. And he kept it. Isn't this title of this series, what does honesty really mean and how do you preserve it for eternity? And if you don't have truth and honesty and trust, what's left? Not much. He brings up from his father, let's be a shining light. And that's what the Jewish people are supposed to be, a shining light and an example to the rest of the world. And yet he brings up a guy where if your character has been flawed, even though he was trusted by so many people. What did Madoff do? Not only did he destroy his whole family, but you can't come back from that because when you have truthfulness and trust that is broken because of your poor character, how do you replace that? How do you mend that? I don't think it can be done, not by humans anyway. And the other thing that I really like is that you can build a trust and how you do business over a period of time and how you interact with people over a period of time where my father never needed a contract in writing. I have a guy renting the building now for almost three years on a handshake. And yet he knows and trusts me and I trust him where everything is going on, where we have a perfect relationship on a handshake. Oh yeah, you cut from the same beef? Well, as my grandmother would say, I said to her, You were married three times. Would you say you loved one better than another? And you know what she said? She says, all three of my husbands came from the same mother. They all loved her. There was that trust that was there. Isn't that really what we're talking about here? Is that if you have the right character and you have the right trust and you trust people and they trust you, that is the way to have a relationship. And it doesn't matter which mother you had because we're all then bred the same way. I never heard you say that before. Oh, you didn't know that, huh? That's really what it's about. And the funny part is, is that when someone crosses the line where you now know that you can never really trust them because their character shows that they're going to lie, they're going to steal, they're going to cheat you. And when you really know it, and it's a character truth that's been broken, not easy to fix that. But if someone has made a mistake, or someone has had a problem and it's a one-time thing and they made a misjudgment, yes, I think that you can forgive and you can move on because we're not perfect, as Steve Covey would say. We're going to make mistakes along the way, but if we learn from them and we keep to our commitments and to our vows, guess what? That means your character is strong and is building a foundation that gets stronger and stronger over a period of time where a Warren Buffett can make a $23 billion deal on a handshake. Kind of crazy, right? Pretty remarkable. 
it is remarkable. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 